D.L. Moody once said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. When we as Christians think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, most of us are picturing people who look and act and think a lot like us. People who fit nicely in our circles, even though the body of Christ is not made up of people who all look the same or all act the same or think the same. People who would not naturally fit in our circles. Now, the body of Christ is made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, as we'll see today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Revelation, where clearly we're all very different, which is the way, of course, it's supposed to be, unified, unified, but not uniform. Right? Unity and uniformity are two different things. We are diverse, but not divided. We're different, and yet we are one. One only because of Jesus Christ. If you read through the entire Bible, you'll find the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout the scriptures from one end to the other. The Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. The gospels point to the life of Jesus Christ, and everything after that points to the church of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. The message has never changed. However, the way that message gets delivered to the world has changed dramatically over time. It was first told through the story of God's people, the Israelites, and then through the prophets, and then through Jesus himself, and then through his disciples, and then from Acts 1 after ascending to heaven, and then in Acts 2 after sending his Holy Spirit to his followers, uh, and then in... Uh, from the second coming of Christ. In other words, from the time Jesus left this earth until he comes back again, the gospel message has been entrusted to the church. Okay? The, the church is God's plan for spreading God's message, and there's no backup plan. We're it, which means we're united not only by a common spirit, but also by a common purpose, a common mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ as we reach the lost, and we do that by sharing his gospel everywhere and every opportunity we can, which of course we talked about last time a couple of weeks ago. And what will become increasingly clear as we work through this book is the fact that having a common purpose also means we have a common enemy. Because the one thing Satan cannot stand against is a unified church. You hear me? The enemy can't stand against a unified church. I've talked about this before. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus replied on this rock, on this profession of faith, on this gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Listen, if you read that phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in the ancient Greek, the original language, the literal rendering of that phrase is the gates of Hades shall not withstand it, which is actually a very significant difference because when you read, you read it the way most English translations have it, which is the way I was taught growing up in church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It sounds like Jesus was saying, no matter what the enemy comes at you with, he will not prevail against you. But when you read it in the original Greek, it's actually the other way around. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not 
withstand it. You see, Jesus was not saying we will be able to withstand the enemy. No, he was saying the enemy will not be able to withstand us. Because his will for the church is for us to be on the offensive, not huddled together in fear, hoping we can survive the attacks of the enemy. It's the other way around. The enemy is supposed to be running from us, unable to withstand the onslaught of Christians who are relentlessly taking ground back from him, tearing down his strongholds and snatching lost people from the fires of hell before it's too late. Jesus was saying, don't wait for the fight to come to you. You take the fight right up to the gates of hell and no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what it's gonna cost you, no matter who you have to fight for, no matter how beat up or bloodied you may be, storm the gates of hell because there's no power in hell that can withstand the power of the church. Listen, when you read that, understanding that, the next verse The next thing Jesus says makes a lot more sense. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a call to get up and get moving, to get in the fight. Can you see the difference? It's an offensive battle strategy against our enemy, not a defensive one. And the enemy knows that. And so his chief aim is to try and prevent us from going on that offensive against him, which is why the apostle Peter warned the church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. He wrote that to the church, not to the world, to the lost people. He wrote that to the church because our adversary is seeking to devour us. Why? To divide us. So he can divide us because he knows he cannot stand against a church that is unified. Okay, this is a warning to all Christians in every age that we have a common enemy who is constantly seeking ways to attack the church. And just as any enemy in a war will attack on many fronts if he can, so too the devil tries to come against the church in as many ways as he can. And one of the most effective strategies in a war is when one side is able to undermine the other from within their own ranks. Okay, if one army can get a man on the inside of the opposing army, that one operative can wreak often more havoc than any full-on assault from the outside, which is a strategy that Satan has used against the church since the inception of the church. The fact is, far more damage has been done to the church over the centuries from within than any attack from without. I've shown you the research before. We won't go through it now, but it bears out the fact that as a rule, the more the church is persecuted by the outside world, the more it thrives, which is the opposite of what you think, but it's true, which we find not only throughout church history, but in modern times as well. Just a few weeks ago, our friend and missionary Abraham Liu told us that for many years, the underground church in China was under heavy persecution. He talked about being arrested multiple times. He talked about their home being monitored around the clock by the police. He told us about his wife being arrested and beaten in his words until she was half dead. The church in China was under heavy persecution and he said it was thriving spreading like wildfire across the country the entire time. That is until, until the economy went through a period of exponential growth a few years ago. And he said as the economy went up, persecution of the church went down, and as persecution went down, the church became more and more comfortable in society, and at the same time, less and less effective at making disciples. As crazy as it sounds, 
Sometimes an attack on the church from the outside world is the best thing that can ever happen to us because it wakes the church up. It calls the church to action and it unifies the church when we're attacked from without. Now listen, the moment real persecution from the outside descends upon the church, our differences within the church won't mean nearly as much as they did the day before the persecution started. Right, when the government tells you it's illegal to teach the Bible, when preaching the gospel can get you arrested or assaulted or even killed, when simply gathering together puts your very life at risk, all of a sudden, the music selection, the style of the building, how cool or uncool your pastor is, which translation of the Bible is being used, how much we have in common or not with the people sitting around us in the building. I'm telling you, those things won't matter to anyone anymore. Not when you're risking your life just to be with other Christians. You see, outside pressure cannot destroy the church, which is why you almost never find local churches that wither and die because of outside pressures, pressure from non-believers. On the contrary, what you almost always find among local churches that end up shutting their doors for good is something that happened within the church itself. What I mean is something brought on by other believers that ultimately led to its demise. You see, if the enemy can get a man or a woman on the inside to do his bidding, he could do far more damage to the church that way than he ever could by attacking it from without. Charles Spurgeon said, nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls but not within its life. Why is that? It's because the church is not a building. The church is not a, a nonprofit corporation. No, it's not a program or a religion. The church is us when we're together. It is a sacred gathering of people who were created in the image of God, bound together by the Spirit of Christ. So you understand, when you say or do something that hurts another member of that same body, you're actually also hurting yourself. When you tear down other Christians, you're tearing down yourself because you're both members, appendages, of the same body. It's the equivalent of picking up a gun and shooting yourself in the foot. Why would you do that? Jesus said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Mark 3, 24 and 25. And yet more than any other time in my lifetime, we're living in a world that is divided against itself. There are religious divisions, political divisions, social divisions, economic divisions, uh, governmental divisions, moral divisions, ideological divisions. You can go on and on. The, the world is a divided place. Truth is, it always has been. And of course, you don't have to leave our own borders to find all of that. We have all those divisions right here at home, across America and in our communities and in our churches. We're living in an exceedingly divided time in history. And so look, it's perfectly fine and right to have different opinions and positions and perspectives on all of these things. And it's good and it's right to discuss and look, even debate those opinions, positions, and perspectives. That's how we learn. That's how we grow and mature together, even if we never fully agree on everything. And all of that is okay. But listen, the moment you allow your opinions 
and positions and perspectives to come between you and other members of that same body of Christ that you belong to, to the point that you break fellowship with other parts of the same body of Christ, you're treading in territory that Jesus and everyone who wrote after him says is a very dangerous place for you to be spiritually. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. And if you just read through the gospels, the one thing that Jesus had no tolerance for. I mean, he, he put up with so much from people. He gave people who didn't deserve it dignity. He honored people, he loved on people, but the one thing he had zero tolerance for was a divided church. Because a church that is divided is incapable of testifying to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. Because we cannot love the world if we cannot love each other first. And if we cannot love each other, then we cannot love God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen, 1 John 4, 20. This is why all of the New Testament writers and Jesus himself reserved their harshest criticisms and gravest consequences for those who were working against the church from within the church. It's also why you'll find the general attitude among the early church leaders was never to try and keep the world, the culture around us, morally in check, right? We, we talk about culture wars all the time. The world is going to be the world. It's not our job as the church to police the culture around us. We're simply supposed to love people in the world with the love of Christ right where they are. It's not our job to morally police the world. Our job when it comes to holding people accountable for their behavior, our job is to keep our own house in order, to keep the church in check. Why? To maintain the unity that we need in order to do what Christ has called us to do. Otherwise, the mission of the church falls apart. We become vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy from within, and ultimately, we're no longer one. We become divided. All right? let's pick our story back up where we left off last time, then, and see what the church looks like when it truly is one church and what it takes to keep it that way. This will be uh, part one, by the way, of a two-part message. I'm trying to get through these uh, sermons a chapter at a time, but there's so much information, sometimes it's impossible to go all the way through. So we'll, we'll spend today and next Sunday working our way through this next chapter, okay? So we'll begin today with the first three verses, Revelation 7, 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So... John's vision continues here as he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of destruction, which was common in apocalyptic writings, this idea that forces of nature were under the charge of angels. In fact, later uh, in Revelation, for example, we're introduced to the angel in charge of the waters in chapter 16, verse 5, and the angel who had charge of the fire in chapter 14, verse 18. And so then John sees another angel coming up from the rising of the sun or from the east, which would be from the direction of Palestine, which makes sense uh, as this angel will seal the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, as we'll see. 
And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, this, this chapter is a parenthesis, if you will, on the heels of chapter six in order to explain the vision that we saw in chapter six in more depth and detail to help us better understand the order of end time events. Okay, at the end of chapter six in verses 12 through 14 at the opening of the sixth seal, John sees the earth, uh, the created order, the sea, the trees, among other things, the entire created order being harmed. It's a time of great destruction where the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, as John explains. And yet here in chapter seven, the angel says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this is simply more detail about what happens in chapter six before the opening of the sixth seal. It's like if you're telling someone a story and before you go to the next part of the story, you pause and explain a little more detail about the part you just told them because again, Clearly, the command to seal God's servants before harming the earth or sea or trees, which we find here in chapter 7, cannot follow the destruction of the earth and sky at the tribulation's end back in chapter 6. So we're now witnessing what happens to the people of God just before, just at the opening of the sixth seal, which Jesus makes clear throughout his teachings. Remember from last time, back in Matthew 24, describing the end of the age. Jesus says they will deliver you up to tribulation. He's talking about Christians and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, Matthew 24, nine. That's a reference to the wrath of men. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations. This is the wrath of men that we're guaranteed to experience upon the opening of the first five seals or the first half of the tribulation. But then Jesus goes on to say in verses 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. This is what John is witnessing here in chapter 7. As believers and followers of Christ all around the world who have suffered the wrath of men are spared from the wrath of God who gathers his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, which he talks about again all the way back in chapter 3, uh, verse 10, if you were here for that. To those who endure the wrath of men poured on the church, Jesus says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, talking about the wicked. This is the moment we're called home before the final period of tribulation begins where God's wrath is poured out on the earth because although we, the church, are guaranteed to experience the wrath of men at the end of this age, we're also guaranteed to be spared from the wrath of God. And, and again, we went through all of this in detail back in chapter six. So if you missed those last two messages just before this one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them because we don't have time to go back through all of that today and yet it makes what's happening in this chapter a lot easier to understand. Okay, so all of that is just context for the rest of this chapter. So you, you understand 
where we are in the order of these end time events here in John's vision, specifically concerning the rapture of the church and when that happens in the sequence of the scrolls being opened. Okay, so let's keep reading verses 4 through 12. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So John hears a multitude of people in verses 4 through 8. And then he sees a multitude of people in verses 9 through 12. The first group was numbered, verse 4, and the second group no one could count, verse 9. The first was Jewish and the second was from every nation. Now look. There is endless debate. I spent more hours than I probably should have this week reading all of the positions. There's endless debate on whether or not the first group represents ethnic Israel or the new Israel, which of course would include Gentiles, and whether or not this group is made up of end time, uh, the end time martyrs described in the previous chapter. Well, look, there is certainly sufficient biblical precedent for the idea of a massive turning of Jewish people to faith in Christ in the end time. We see that in Romans 11, uh, 25 through 27, Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Hosea 2, 11, 14, uh, Amos 9 as well. And uh, so there's no reason to doubt that John, as a Jewish Christian, of course, would be describing such a group of ethnic Jews. And yet to spend the time necessary to unpack both sides of this argument, which would literally take us all day, is unnecessary. Because first of all, it's somewhat of a moot point. Because no matter who they are, they're included in the second group. The people John sees from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples and languages. Okay, All means all. And so regardless of whether the first group is made up of ethnic Jews or not, the second group clearly represents all of God's people, including all of the Jewish people who've chosen to follow Christ, joined together as one, one body, one family, one church, one people. And so rather than focusing on the ethnic identity of the people in verses 4 through 8, it's probably more insightful for us to pay attention to the description of how they're being counted because it strongly resembles the military censuses that were taken throughout the Old Testament to assess military preparation for war, including Numbers 1-3, also verse 18, verse 20, chapters 26, verses 2 and 4, 1 Chronicles chapter 27, just to name a few. 
12 equal contingents from different tribes or regions made up of battalions of 1,000, suggesting that each tribe supplies 12 battalions of 1,000 men each, which may be a, a literal or symbolic number. It doesn't really matter. The point is, this part of the vision may well represent the end-time army that's being prepared for spiritual battle out of the unified body of Christ, which we see in Revelation 19. And interestingly, the only, time, uh, the only other time in Revelation where John hears a number, it's the number of the world's army, 200 million strong in chapter 9, which means if, if this is literal, this number, then God's army may be overwhelmingly outnumbered by the world's army, and yet as we know, we will overcome the enemy. And keep in mind, at this time this was written, this was uh, still a relatively small number of Christians in the world. This was the first century. So for John to see a multitude of believers so big they could not be counted, that really should put to rest the idea that these events had already occurred, that, that these writings of John are history and not prophecy, as a lot of people suggest. There's a whole theology behind that. Okay? And then in chapter 14, verse 1, we learn that the seal on their forehead is the lamb's name and his father's name in contrast with those who take the mark of the beast with the beast's name or the number of his name on their right hand or their forehead. And they're wearing white robes, which symbolizes our righteousness in Christ, and palm branches in their hands that symbolize military triumph, which began with the uh, Jewish Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire all the way back in the 160s BC. It was later reflected during Jesus' triumphal entry, as I'm sure you know, into Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. I mean, this must have been an utterly overwhelming vision to behold. For John, only knowing firsthand the fledgling movement that was first century Christianity to now seeing billions of Christians bearing all the marks of military triumph around the throne together as one, worshiping Jesus Christ. Just imagine it. If, if there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents, Luke 15, 10, how staggering will it be to witness the celebration of the heavenly host when all the redeemed through all of time stand before God as one. This is the very picture of the church, the body of Christ as we were intended to be from the beginning. Not fragmented pieces, separated and scattered, functioning independently from one another. No, the church is one when we are together. I don't just mean physically together, although that's often a factor, as we'll see. But together in the sense that we're unified despite all of our differences. We're one family with one purpose, one vision, one mission, and one focus. As the Apostle Paul says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. But listen, you cannot be one with the body you're disconnected from, isolated from. After his baptism, the very first thing Jesus did to begin his ministry on this earth was to go and choose other people to participate in that ministry together with him. The very last thing he did before leaving this earth was to gather those same people together and instruct them to go to the ends of the earth in order to bring together as many people as they could into that ministry with them. 
And of course, the entire journey between those two points, Jesus was teaching them exactly how to do that, how to carry out that ministry together as one people, one body. In fact, everything Jesus taught them to do, he taught them to do it together. He taught them how to commune with God together. We're gonna share in the Lord's table next Sunday, all together. He taught them how to worship God together. He even taught them how to pray to God together. Jesus taught his followers how to serve God in so many different ways, but it was always together. In fact, the only way, the only way he never taught them to serve God was alone, which wasn't a new development by the way. For God's people in Jesus' day, the truth is from the very beginning and throughout all of humanity, uh, all the human history, God's intention for his people has been to, to be with him, to serve him, for us to serve him together with each other, not alone. Okay, the very first human being, Adam, God said it is not good that the man should be what? Alone, Genesis 2.18. King Solomon, who was described in 1 Kings 4 as the wisest man alive, said whoever isolates himself, seeks his own, uh, and, and seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment, Proverbs 18.21. He also said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. And again, as you read through the Gospels, all of Jesus' teachings and instruction were given to the disciples to be carried out together. They weren't sent out alone. There were no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. He sent them out two by two. The apostle Paul traveled with a team of people at all times. But why? Why is it so important? It's important because that is the very essence and nature of who God is. Okay, before God created anything, including the angels, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was in perfect fellowship with itself, which is why in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. There are people who say he was actually referring to angels in that verse, or the sons of God, when he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Sorry, we weren't created in the image of angels. No, we were created in the image of God, which is confirmed in the very next verse, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It's also true, by the way, when we're born again or made new, according to the Apostle Paul, who said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Okay, we're created in God's image, and are commanded to be like God, to imitate and reflect Him. But listen, here's the point. You cannot fully reflect God's image. You cannot truly be like God. You cannot accurately imitate him when you're alone. Why not? Because God is never alone. Even when the apostles abandoned Jesus, listen to what he said. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. 
for the Father is with me. John 16, 32, you see, built into the very essence and nature of God himself is fellowship, not isolation, which means we cannot be like him when we isolate ourselves from other believers. Now listen, I'm not saying you can't ever be by yourself. It can be very healthy, and I think sometimes it's necessary to spend time away from other human interaction, just as Jesus did at times. I love nothing more than a few hours away in a tree stand by myself. But look, even then, it's not to be alone. It's to be with God without distractions. That's what Jesus did when he separated himself from his disciples, from other people. He wasn't going off just to have some me time. No, he went to be with the Father. And that's what we all need in our lives. What I'm talking about is followers of Christ who alienate themselves from other followers of Christ. Believers who avoid the church, not just the building, but the people the body of Christ, and I don't just mean in the physical sense either, because I know good and well, you can be in a room full of people and be utterly alone. You can attend church services and church events and church ministries and be so spiritually, emotionally, and relationally unengaged with those around you while you're there at those services and events and ministries that you might as well be there by yourself. And listen, some of you need to hear this today. Because as Christians, we often have this attitude, and I've, I've heard this more times than I can count. All I need is me and Jesus. That sounds great, but that's not what the Bible says. No, the Bible says you need Jesus and the person sitting next to you. Not for your salvation, of course, that's between you and God, but you cannot be one with a body you're not connected to. You cannot be one with a body you're not connected to. Whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, God's word is clear. If you're going to live the life you were created and called to live, the only way you can do that is with Jesus and your brothers and sisters in Christ, because not one of us has been created or called to serve God alone. It's another reason we've tried to encourage people to come back to church after COVID, because church on your couch isn't the same thing as church when we're together with the rest of the body that you belong to. You cannot become one with people you're not connected to. Okay, we're not called to be a dismembered body, scattered, apart, alone, isolated. No, we're called to be one, united together, which means actually being together. And no, you're not always gonna have everything in common with the person next to you. No, everyone in the room may not naturally fit in with your usual circle of friends. No, you may not look the same or act the same or think the same. In fact, that's the whole point. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. We're all different, yet we are one. It's just that sometimes we don't act like it. We pretend like we don't need each other. We live like we can do without the rest of the body, but Paul was very clear about that when he said, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of, be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. 
If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Sorry, me and Jesus isn't enough. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 27. I'm just saying we have to stop acting like we don't belong to each other because we do. We have to stop acting like we don't need each other because we do. We have to stop acting, by the way, like others don't need us. Too many people look for a local church today based on what they think they need from the church. Did you ever stop to consider that the church might need you? Yeah, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The fact is we need each other and you will never be one with people you're not connected to. It is impossible. So don't isolate yourself from the body. Whether you attend the gatherings or not, don't fool yourself into believing you can come and go here without any real connection and still become the man or woman of God he created you to be, to fulfill your purpose and your potential. You can't if you're disconnected from the body. Listen, if Jesus couldn't do it, I'm pretty sure you can't either. Think about it. Do we have one example in all of scripture of a true disciple of Christ whose entire involvement with the rest of the body was showing up once a week on Sunday for a service? Just read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Every aspect of their lives was inextricably linked to the rest of the church every single day, no matter where they were or what they were doing. They were connected because the church is not a building. It's, it's not a nonprofit corporation. It's not a program or a religion. No, the church is us when we're together, a sacred gathering of people who were created in the image of God, forever bound together by the Spirit of Christ as we see as it should be here in Revelation 7. Individual parts from all over the world, all different backgrounds, all different upbringings. We look different, act different, think different, that all come together to become one. Let's pray.